great show, and thank you so much for coming to talk by John Conference on the background to the coming crisis in U.S.-China relations. For more than a century, Americans have wanted to see a strong, stable China. Now that China is strong, then Americans don't know how to handle it. And this event is sponsored by the Liu Institute for Asian Studies, the Notre Dame International Security Center, thank you, my gosh, and the Q School, and also, um, I'm Victoria, Victoria Ho, a faculty with the political science department, and also a faculty fellow with the Liu Institute. I think I'm kind of partially adopted by NDISC. And so thank you for the office co-sponsorship. I invited John to come to give us this talk because I teach a course, The China Challenge, Guns, Trade, and Confucius. And in this course, we use this book, The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom. Those of you who are taking this class and have read half of the book, did you guys like it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is paid for advertising. There are coffees outside, and feel free to get a coffee, and then, you know, before the, the speaker leaves, and make, him, make sure that he signs a coffee. He's also the author of Chinese Lessons, Five Classmates and the Story of the New China. And John studied in Nanjing in the early 1980s as part of the first wave of American students studying in China. And other than that, John has also worked as a journalist for Washington Post for 20 years. In addition to covering China, he has also been to everywhere. And especially for those of you who are interested in his case study, he has been a correspondent to, let me see the long list, in Afghanistan, Bosnia, Congo, Sri Lanka, Iraq, Turkey, and Iran. And then in 2003, conference was awarded the Osborne Elliott Award for the best conference of Asia by the Asia Society. And in, in 2007, he was awarded the Shorenstein Award from Harvard and Stanford Universities for his lifetime coverage of Asia. So thank you so much, and we're very happy to have John here. He's going to speak for about 40 minutes, and then afterwards, we're going to open up a Q&A until 5.30. And in the, during the Q&A se session, that our, um, our Commander-in-Chief says that you have to speak up so that we can actually record you. And I'm going to give priority to undergrads. So raise your hand and then you know, tell us your name and your major and your year, and then ask your question. Thank you so much. Let's welcome you. Thank you very much, Victoria. It's, it's really great to be uh, in Notre Dame. You guys have been uh, giving me an incredibly warm welcome over the the last two and a half days I've spent here, it's been, it's been really lovely. Um, so I'm going to try in the space of 40, 40 minutes or less to compress about 250 years of history into 40 minutes or less. Um, so um, if you, as you listen to me rattle on, think that I'm um, purveying sort of huge ideological problems, I probably am. And if I'm engaging in fake news, that might be possible as well. But I thought that, um, uh, I, I, I want to try to encapsulate some of the, the lessons, I think, that, that from my book in, in a way that's, that's at least throw, throwing it out as a, as a topic of debate. And so I'd like to talk about kind of the historical underpinnings of what I think is going to be a brewing crisis between the United States and China. And to do that, I want to take you back to actually July 12, 1843, when John Tyler, who was the 10th president of the United States, wrote the first letter that an American political leader had written to China, to the Chinese political, his Chinese political counterpart, who at that time was the Emperor Xianfeng, who at the age when Tyler was writing him was, was a mere 12 years old. And um, Tyler uh, asked 
uh, a congressman from Massachusetts by the name of Caleb Cushing to take the letter with him to China. Cushing was going to China on a mission to negotiate the first American treaty with China. And in the letter, Tyler basically announced the America's position on China, that a strong, territorially united, stable China was in the direct interest of the United States. And I think this basic idea has continued off and on, sometimes not so much so, but generally for, for, has dominated the American view of what type of China the United States would like to see since then. In fact, since when Tyler wrote the letter in 1843, Americans had already been engaging with China for 60 years. So since the, the year that the United States won independence from the British, 1783, was the year that the first American ship went to trade to China. Um, and the idea of trading with China at the time was an important one to the merchant families in the northeastern United States, where most of the American population at the time resided. Because the British had shut off the Caribbean to American ships as part of the British embargo following our defeat of the British in the Revolutionary War. And the idea of trading with China was kind of a Hail Mary pass by the merchants in Massachusetts, in Philadelphia, and in, and in New York as a way to break out of the British embargo. And it actually succeeded, so much so that the first founding fortunes of American capitalism were made in the trade with China. Americans sold the Chinese American-grown ginseng, which the Chinese eat as a root for, for vitality. They brought the Chinese massive amounts of Mexican silver that they used to trade for Chinese tea, Chinese porcelain, and, and, Chinese, and, Chinese, and Chinese cloth. So the idea that a strong, stable China was in the interest of the United States sort of grew in the, uh, through the 1850s when the United States faced its first challenge, the uh, first debate about this issue. Because in the 1850s in China, there was a massive rebellion called the Taiping Rebellion, uh, which ended up killing an estimated between 20 to 40 million Chinese. And at the time in the United States, the, this rebellion was actually front page news. And it was front page news not because it was, it was, it was bloody, but because the leader of the rebellion was a fellow by the name of Hong Xiuquan, who had come to a type of proto-Christianity at the feet of an evangelical preacher from Mississippi by the name of Issachar Roberts. He was a Protestant. It's always the Protestants who are causing trouble. Um, and, and he taught Hong Xiuquan this kind of fire and brimstone evangelical Christianity, which believed in sort of shaking and speaking in tongues. And Hong Xiuquan was really very attracted to this idea, so much so that in his visions, in which he had visions, and, 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 and Roberts encouraged him to have visions, Hong Xiuquan saw himself as the younger brother of Jesus Christ, who'd been put on the earth to form a Christian Chinese kingdom. And at that time in the United States, this idea of a Christian Chinese kingdom was really attractive to the American missionary sect. And so in Baptist newspapers in the South, it was front page news that there's a Christian China, and it has this leader, and we have this preacher named Issachar Roberts who is bringing him to Jesus. Even in the pages of the New York Times, this was debated, should we recognize this Christian China, in addition, in addition to recognizing the Qing government in Beijing, should we trade with both? But the counter-argument made by, let's, let's say, American realists of the time was that that would be an enormous mistake because if we do recognize these two Chinas, one a Christian China and one sort of the, the imperial China, we will ultimately end up helping our competitors, who are the imperialists from Britain, and France, and Germany, 
and even potentially from Russia, who are interested in weakening China, in dividing China so that they can carve up China into spheres of influence. And that view won out. And so it strengthened America's commitment from, from, from that moment on to sort of this idea of a united China, so much so that, that while Roberts was attempting to go to Nanjing, which was the capital of the, the Taiping Tianguo, the, the, the kingdom of heavenly peace, other Americans in Shanghai, particularly a guy by the name of Frederick Townsend Ward, who was a mercenary from Massachusetts, were in the midst of forming an army of Chinese that the Chinese government ultimately used as the shock troops that they used to suppress the Taiping Rebellion. And so while the Americans were trying to stop Issachar Roberts from going to, to Nanjing to, to continue ministering to Hong Xiuquan, the leader of the Taiping Rebellion, Americans at the same time were also supporting the idea of, of helping the Qing suppress the rebellion. And ultimately, with the help of Frederick Townsend Ward and other Westerners, the rebellion was repressed. So this idea that China should be strong and, and, ter and, ter and, and, and the territorial integrity of China should be respected continued and actually grew uh, in, in influence over the course of the 1860s, especially as the United States emerged out of its own civil disorder, the Civil War. We had this sort of, often in, in, with China and America, you have this kind of cosmic symmetry of our histories together. You know, we had the 1960s, the Chinese have had the Cultural Revolution, we had our Civil War, the Chinese had the Taiping Rebellion, so much so that mis the missionary group in the United States really embraced the idea of a strong central China. And they also embraced the belief that China, with time, would converge and be more and more like the Chinese. And so in, in 1868, in November, in the November issue of Harper's Magazine, we have a missionary by the name of William Spear, Spear predicting that China, actually describing China as one of the freest and most naturally democratic nations of the world, and predicting that China would soon resemble, of all places, New England, with its pagodas and temples, as he wrote, replaced by the white spires of Christian churches and schools. So this belief that China should be strong, should be stable, and should be like us, basically accelerated as the 19th century drew to a close. And that's interesting because as the 19th century drew to a close, the imperial powers began to carve up the Chinese melon, as, as the American press said at the time. So already the, the Brits had taken Hong Kong in 1842, but in the 1880s, the Germans grabbed Shandong province. Uh, within several years, Manchuria would be carved up between the Japanese and the Russians. The British, continuing their interest in China, were, were looking at a string of colonies along the Yangtze the Yangtze River Delta, and meanwhile from the south, the, the French were moving up from their colony in Indochina to grab Yunnan province, Guizhou, and Guangxi. And so the idea that China was being dismantled was, was a particularly worrisome to Americans, both in the business community, also in the missionary groups, but also among American strategists at the time. So in 1899, the United States tries to craft a response to this carving up of the Chinese melon by announcing the open door policy, which you, many of you who have any passing interest in China have probably heard of. The idea behind the open door policy was this basically announcement the United States opposed these spheres of influence. It didn't, now, it didn't do anything to actually fight against them, but it opposed them and that China should be open to American trade and that no country should take parts of China as a colony. The next year, it was tested. It had its like, first big test when another rebellion erupts in China. 
It's called the Boxer Rebellion, which was led by um, aficionados of Kung Fu, basically, who had convinced themselves that um, their righteous fists would beat back the bullets of Western powers, and they actually learned a very hard lesson that that was not the case. They focused their attention on Western, specifically Western missionaries in China, but their hatred was of the Western carving up of the Chinese melon, if you will. So they killed several hundred Western missionaries and thousands of Chinese Christians. The Qing dynasty at the time supported this rebellion. And so in response to this, eight nations gathered together, including the United States, and sent an expeditionary force into northern China to suppress the rebellion. And the Americans, of course, did it clearly for American interests, to protect American lives and property. But the other reason the Americans did this, if, if you read you know, the, the communication between Washington and the Americans in the field in China, was to ensure that after the rebellion was suppressed, the imperialists would, would not carve China up into, in, into groups, in, into spheres of influence. And in fact, the idea, that the idea of partic the partitioning of, of China was so important to the Americans that to avoid that you, ha you have people like Secretary of War Elia Root writing to his wife at the time that he said that the partition of China would be second to no event in its effect upon mankind since the fall of the Roman Empire. I mean, this was serious stakes from their perspective. Um, now, why were these serious stakes? Uh, on, on the merchant side, on the side of business, there was this idea that China, a united China, was a vast market for, a potentially vast market for American goods. But also on the side of, of the American strategists, it was that a united China would be in a critically important bulwark to push back against the efforts of imperial powers, our real competitors, which at the time were the British, were the Japanese, were the Russians, from dominating Asia. So that Asia would be open to our influence and potentially our domination as well. The United States at that moment, from the 1900s on, its policy towards China began to change because they realized that simply supporting China vocally would not actually help things. So the American government began to basically adopt a policy that later on began, was called engagement, which was basically trying to do as much as it could to support changes in China. They would follow along you know, U.S. interest and, and U.S. ideology. So the Chinese government, as part of the Boxer Rebellion, had to, had to pay an indemnity to nations around the world who had lost, whose citizens had been killed in China or had lost property. The Americans took that money, called the Boxer Indemnity, and basically returned it to China um, and, 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 and used it, using it for education. So they established a university in China called Tsinghua University, which ultimately became sort of China's MIT. But they also brought thousands of Chinese to the United States to educate them in biology, in paleontology, in medicine, and those people then returned to China to establish what the Americans thought or hoped would be, would be a core of American-educated Chinese who would then influence the course of Chinese history. At the same time, the missionaries who were in China changed their tone from evangelical Christianity, basically railing at people at crossroads and trying to get people to convert, to sort of social work. So they again pushed education as an important part of their process of trying to strengthen China, to get to basically put meat on the bones of this American hope that China would converge and become more like us. This idea, and then Americans of a more agnostic bent uh, were involved in setting up China's advertising industry. Uh, the AI, AIG, the large global insurance giant, was founded in Shanghai. 
uh, Hollywood, Chinese Hollywood was started by, by Americans uh, as well. So the idea that China should be sovereign and should be, that its territorial integrity should be respected and it should become more, more, more like us accelerated as the, the world kind of edged towards World War II. And Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whose uh, ancestors had made enormous amounts of money in the China trade, really believed that China was going to be one of the pillars of global civility in the, the post-war world. It would be one of the four policemen with the UK, the Soviet Union, America, and China ruling the war and trying to avoid conflict in the future. And so he basically authorized the United States to pour billions and billions of dollars into China during World War II as, an, as the idea of to prop up China and to help it fight against the Japanese. Then, of course, things didn't turn out as Delano Roosevelt, Frank, FDR would have liked. China turned communist with the victory of the Communist Revolution in 1949. And then the United States enters into this kind of anomalous, very bizarre interregnum period where instead of embracing China and supporting China, we attempt to isolate China. And we, isolate, we want to isolate China even more than we wanted to isolate the Soviet Union. And so our economic embargo on China was much stricter than the embargo we had on the Soviet Union, where actually there was American trade between uh, Russia, Russia and the United States, whereas there was no trade at all between Americans and Chinese. And so much so that when the Canadians tried to have soy sauce and fish oil transshipped over American territory to go to Toronto, the American government blocked those shipments. So it's like a level of detail that was ridiculous. <laughs> in addition, the United States was also interested in trying to encourage instability in China. So the CIA backed Tibetan insurgents who were against the takeover of Tibet by the Chinese government. And of course, the United States strongly backed the rump government, the nationalist government in Taiwan. But over time, the isolation of China became to be seen in the United States as increasingly incongruous and, in fact, ridiculous. You had the business community, which wanted access, reopening of China's market, lobbying against that. You had religious community, Christian communities arguing against that. You also had politicians. And even by 1963, you had entertainers. So Frank Sinatra, in his interview with Playboy in 63, says something that was on the minds of many Americans, which was, I don't see how you can sweep 800 million people under the rug and not recognize China. By 1968, even Richard Nixon, who'd come to his political maturity as a, as a, as a communist red baiter, basically acknowledging and, and actually calling in the pages of the Foreign, Foreign Affairs magazine that, that, that China really should be, the United States had the responsibility to bring China back into the family of nations. The next year, 1969, was, was a real turning point. The Russians at the time had ha were having a very difficult relationship with the Chinese. There was a Sino-Soviet split, and they came to the, the Johnson administration and then to the Nixon administration with a proposal that the United States and Russia to team up and uh, 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 unleash a nuclear strike on China in order to destroy China's nuclear facilities. China had exploded the bomb in 1964. And it was a proposal that the Americans had actually floated to the Russians in 1963. John F. Kennedy had, had, had asked William uh, uh, Harriman to go talk to Khrushchev and float that idea in 63, and the Russians in 63 had rejected it. In 69, the Americans rejected it, but in, interestingly, they rejected it quite publicly, basically. And this was actually a revolutionary idea. It was the first time the United States had come out publicly warning Moscow not to bully Beijing. 
And I think from then on, in many ways, the die was cast. You had Nixon winning the presidency. You had the 1972 trip, Nixon trip to China, the opening, quote unquote, to China. With Henry Kissinger, Nixon's national security advisor, bringing China loads of highly classified satellite photographs about Russian military emplacements along the Chinese border. And the United States kind of resuming what it believed to be its historical role as the nation that was going to bring China into the community of, of nations and, and help to strengthen and, 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 and support a strong and stable China. Then in 79, uh, the Soviets invade Afghanistan. And what was a friendly relationship becomes a de facto alliance, with 300 million American dollars being spent on buying Chinese weaponry, which China and the United States then funneled into the Afghan Mujahideen to fight the Soviet uh, takeover of Afghanistan on the backs of thousands and thousands of Chinese donkeys. You had the CIA setting up a uh, joint uh, intelligence collection area in Xinjiang province in the northwest. And then on the economic side, you had the United States kind of standing back while massive amounts of American technology, the government standing back where massive amounts of techno American technology go to China, a lot of American trade goes to China, and, and as well, millions and billions of dollars actually in World Bank loans go to help build China's infrastructure. Again, the US goal was a strong China. So when Vice President of the United States, Walter Mondale, goes to China in 1979, he tells Deng Xiaoping, then the paramount Chinese leader, we have insisted repeatedly, and I will state it again, we strongly believe in the importance of a strong China. Unstated, of course, was a China more and more like us. So when China wins most favored nation trading status, which was critically important to the Chinese economy, because it means that any Chinese product coming to the United States would be treated like a Chinese product from Western Europe or, 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 or Britain. When, when China won that, the Americans expected clearly that the Chinese system was on this unstoppable trajectory toward a market economy and a liberal political system. So you just, just listen, for example, to rep, a fellow by the name of Representative Bill Alexander, who was a Democrat from Arkansas, who, who told the House on January 24th, 1980, the day Chinese won MFN, he said, the seeds of democracy are growing in China. So underlining this goal, as it had in the 19th century, was this idea that the stronger Chinese became, the more that the Chinese system would become like us. Then we have this first crisis in US-China relations uh, in the modern era, where the collapse of the Soviet Union happens. And then on June 4th, 1989, the Chinese cracked down on, on nationwide protests uh, for a freer country. But in the United States, 1989 was sort of this crisis. But to many, it was simply a bump in the road. Uh, it didn't really fundamentally shake this idea that China was converging toward our system, especially because once 1992 happened, and the Chinese doubled down on economic reforms, Americans really cottoned on to the idea that, hey, 89 was one thing, but it's not going to get in the way. China is really converging uh, toward our system. And from then on, the United States policy towards China really became engagement. And the problem with the word engagement is it's kind of boring, actually. And it doesn't really define how deep this meld was be between the United States federal bureaucracy and China. <coughs> every agency in the United States government, it's not just the Department of Treasury and the State Department, but every agency from uh, Fish and Wildlife, the Department of the Interior, uh, the FAA was, was hugely involved because of flight safety issues. 
almost every, in fact, every agency was tasked with finding a Chinese partner and engaging with that, with that Chinese partner. The idea would be to lock China in to a, a system that was supportive of our values and our ideas. <clears throat> so the Clinton administration framed its, its embrace of China's negotiations in the WTO with the same fervor that the Carter administration embraced the awarding of MFN to the Chinese. WFO extension for China actually occurred during George W. Bush, but why WTO? Again, it was explained to the American people, and this is from Robert Rubin, who was Clinton's Secretary of the Treasury. He assured Congress that WTO's accession would, again, and it sounds like Bill Alexander, would sow the seeds of freedom for China's 1.2 billion people. So it's just like Alexander, and this was in 1996. So <laughs> the, issue, the issue to me, one of the interesting issues to me was, was this delusional? I mean, was China converging? And I think there's, there's arguments on, on, to, be had on, to be made on both sides. But on one level, you can say, you know, China was converging. The state-owned sector in China was shrinking. The private sector was booming. <coughs> foreign businesses were welcome. Foreign equity, uh, private enterprise, was, the investment was, 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 was highly desired. Foreigners who invested in China were given more rights than Chinese investors in China. So there was this real sense that first that China's state was withdraw withdrawing from the economy and that China's economy was slowly being kind of Americanized in many ways. On the streets, China changed completely, right? When I went there in 1980, everyone was in greens and blues, and by the time I returned in 1996, it was miniskirts all over the place. And so the sense on the streets was China was become clearly more and more, the, uh, more and more like us. So when Obama entered office, he continued to repeat the mantra of the past. And he said at various times over the course of his eight, eight years, a strong China is in the interest of the United States, we welcome a strong China, and a strong China is good for America. But Obama's cheerleading actually marked changes underneath the surface of the relationship. <clears throat> First, um, during the course of the Clinton administration, the United States blows up with, with basically bombs and destroys China's embassy in Yugoslavia, uh, causing the death of three Chinese reporters, and, and, and triggering massive anti-American demonstrations in the United States. And then at the same, also several years uh, before that, we have, in 1996, the United States dispatching two aircraft carrier battle groups off the, sh off the shores of Taiwan, um, leading the Chinese to believe that the United States is violating what they believe to have been assurances by both the Nixon administration and the Carter administration that America would stand back as China slowly absorbed Taiwan. Then after 9-11, we have other issues. The American decision to invade Iraq emboldened people in China who did not believe in convergence to argue that the United States was actually no longer a global policeman, but had actually been turned into kind of a global bully, an international thug. And then among Chinese dissidents, the pro-Western dissidents in China, when the Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo and the Black Site scandals erupted, it weakened their argument that the American system was a good system, and that we were actually, really actually underneath, in, in the hearts and minds, respected human rights. Then, when we backed color revolutions in the Mideast, 
Chinese, wealthy Chinese, looked at that and saw the ensuing chaos in a lot of these revolutions and looked at the Americans and thought, you know, you don't want to actually change us into a free and strong country. You want to actually weaken us like the imperialists did in the 19th century. Then 2008 happens, and we have our economic crisis. And it bolstered, again, it bolstered the argument in China that not only were ideas questionable, but our actually economic system that gave us so much power was questionable as well. And there's this remarkable anecdote in a book written by Henry Paulson, former Treasury Secretary, about engaging with a Chinese politician, very important political figure by the name of Wang Qishan. And Paulson had known Wang Qishan very well during his time as, as the, the, the CEO of Goldman Sachs. And, and, and Paulson had done a lot with the Chinese to restructure state-owned enterprises to put them on a solid footing to move, on, move into the future. And Wang Xishan takes Paulson aside in 2008. Paulson at that time is the Secretary of Treasury in the Bush administration. And he wags his finger at him and he says, you used to be my teacher, not anymore, as the chaos is, is, is coursing through the American financial system. And so by the end of the 2000s, we see many in China um, looking at the US model as no longer attractive, both for its principles, but also for its results. And at the same time, the Chinese model is starting to look actually pretty good. Um, I mean, it's hard to kind of explain that how much China's changed. I mean, when I first went to China in 1980, um, and up until today, China's economy has grown 43-fold. The per capita GDP has grown 43-fold. That's not 43%, that's 43-fold. The change in the life, the material life of the Chinese is just absolutely extraordinary. When my classmates with whom I attended university graduated from college in 1981, they made 125 bucks a month. And, and you could say, well, I was in China and the dollar was worth more, but it really didn't go very far. Now all 63 of them, and they have graduated in the history, history, which is not generally a major associated with making a lot of money in China, all of them are millionaires in dollar terms. And on a national level, um, the sort of can-do spirit in China is really extraordinary. And it compares actually relatively favorably with that in the United States. So a couple of like factoids. 1996, California began its first high-speed rail authority. And since 1996 until today in California, that state has built 119 miles of high-speed rail. In that same period of time, China has built, and that's the most in the United States, um, even more somewhat than the, the Florida um, uh, attempt. China in the same period has built 16,000 miles. When New York City opened the Second Avenue subway, I'm a New Yorker, so I have kind of skin in that game, um, it took them 10 years and $4.5 billion to build three stops on a subway. In that same period of time, with that same amount of money, the Chinese built full systems in five cities. And meanwhile, in 20 other cities, they're building systems for even more money. But, but from the Chinese perspective, they looked pretty good. If you look at just last year, when China only grew by 6.7 or 6.9%, depends on what you believe, it actually added, over the course of that year, an economy the size of, of Russia, one trillion extra dollars. So this is pretty successful. And so while we kind of um, uh, stuttered as we moved, there were, the Chinese looked at us, and there was a natural triumphalism that began to emerge in China as it looked at the United States. So in the past, like 10 years ago, 
you didn't see coming from China this idea that China actually had an exportable model to the rest of the world. The people who created the idea of a Beijing consensus were all, all actually Westerners. But now you see the Chinese state-owned media saying, yes, actually, we do have a model. An expression has now appeared in the Chinese media called the China solution, right? to explain China's mix of mercantilist economic system with an authoritarian uh, political system as, as, as the way forward for the nations of the world wanting to modernize like China. And so how is the US reacting? And I'd like to preface this saying it's not just, it's not just Donald Trump. I think that no matter who would be in the White House right now, um, it would be somewhat similar in a way, maybe depressing in that sense, but somewhat similar. But the Trump administration's shift about China was made very public in December with the release of the National Security Strategy Statement in which it named China for the first time a, a competitive rival, a strategic competitor of the United States. This change was echoed by the Defense Department, both in its defense strategy, but also in its nuclear strategy. And the Trump administration is taking very clear steps to begin dismantling the engagement policy. So dozens of agency-to-agency -agency, uh, dialogues, which had worked, which had been in, in, in place since the early 90s, have now been stopped. And then the four bilateral conversations that the US was, was, was supposed to have with China as part of the Mar-a-Lago summit between Xi Jinping and Trump. Of those four, three are now been put on hold. There's only one that continues, which is on, on military and military. Um, Chinese investment is now down in the United States as the Treasury Department is taking action against their, their worries that China is going to be taking American technology. And so what's unclear, actually, is how far the Trump administration is going to take this. But today, we have a sign, and it's not necessarily a good one, with the Trump administration slapping high tariffs on, on aluminum and steel products coming from China. And there's clearly a, a sense that the more and more tariffs are going to becoming, come on Chinese trade. So to sum up, I, I think this shift in the United States um, away from the idea, dropping the idea that convergence is possible, is an important one. Uh, and I think we basically spent, as Victoria said in the beginning, two centuries kind of waiting for China to be strong and stable. The implication was, is, was it's going to be like us, and it's not turn, turned out that way. Previously, the relation had not been predicated on, a, on, on, a, on the assumption that there was going to be a rivalry between the two nations, but I think increasingly so it's now predicated on there's going to be rivalry. The, the conundrum for, for the United States, not just for the government, but for the rest of us, is that if you look around the world, no problem can be solved without the Chinese being having a seat at the table, and a major seat at the table. So climate change, for sure, right? The, the world economy, definitely. North Korea, that's a no-brainer. Uh, terrorism, even, very important. And so if you have these type of conversations with a nation that you've deemed to be a rival, how are they going to be different from one in which you're more open to the potential for friendship? I, I, I don't know how that's going to work, but I think it's going to be a challenge, not just for old people like me, but clearly for young people like you. So with that, um, I'll take your questions. And as much as possible so that these sensors hanging down from the ceiling can record your voice. The National Security Administration <laughs> <laughs> is interested in your views. That's right. More and more like China. <laughs> Questions? Your name and major and... 
Um, my name is Erin. I'm a senior studying political science in Arabic. And my question is, um, you were talking about the China solution. And I was curious how that would look given China's history of emphasizing how it doesn't have an interest in how other countries run themselves. Would this be, do you think it would take more of a coercive stance? So that's a great question. I think you already see that changing. So um, a couple of examples. Um, clearest one is uh, Robert Mugabe left his position of power in, in Zimbabwe um, several days after the leader of the Zimbabwean Air Force, just, I mean the military, just happened to be in Beijing. And if you th think that's a coincidence, then I sort of humbly disagree. But I think you're going to see China being more involved in the internal affairs of its, of its neighbors and its trading partners. Um, China, uh, and, and the issue of China will become more and more of a political issue in countries around the world. It's already, it was, was, was part and parcel of the recent election in, in Sri Lanka. Um, and uh, so there, I think there's indications that China, with increased power, understands that there will be increased responsibility for China in order to ensure its interests to, to use uh, you know, blunt term, meddle in the affairs of, of its neighbors and its trading partners around the world. I think that's a natural, um, despite the fact that the Chinese adhere to what they call the five principles of peaceful coexistence, I think the reality is that as it becomes a global superpower, it will engage in activities that superpowers have done for years. Um, thanks for the terrific talk. Um, I want to ask a, a somewhat provocative question. I want to ask, who lost China? seems to me there's two arguments that one could make. One was that uh, we didn't go far enough to engage, um, that there was more that could have been done uh, that we uh, didn't do. But another argument would be that uh, what's happening now is inevitable, given the rise of China um, and uh, the, uh, you know, the relative change in global politics. I mean, you know, in the uh, early 1970s, uh, we were desperate uh, for, uh, you know, both a way out of Vietnam and right. uh, counterbalance to, to the Soviet, Soviet Union right. that was looking pretty good at the time. Yeah. Um, but I would say the, the beginning of uh, the discussion of uh, China as a major strategic rival began uh, basically in the early 1990s. I mean, right. a abortive... Um, you know, Wolfowitz-Cheney um, uh, draft defense policy guidance that, you know, sort of laid out the uh, argument for uh, the United States as global hegemon, I think was explicitly <coughs> directed at China and directed in part on ideological grounds, but mostly uh, on a certain realpolitik ground. But, yeah. Uh, where, where would you come down uh, on this argument? So I, I would say that ideology, the 1989 experience for strategists in the United States was an important, significantly important moment. And um, I would, to the answer of who lost China, I would, I would sort of pose a, another question in order to dodge it in a way to say, was China there to lose to begin with? I happen to believe that the idea of convergence, it has always been for us sort of more, much more of a fantasy than a reality. 
And I think specifically in the Chinese system, the communist system, not the Chinese people, which I think are very different, but the communist system has always really embraced the idea of the United States as an ideological enemy as well. Just as we, and even though China's economy is no longer quote unquote communist, I think the fundamental nature of their anti-American stance within the party state has mirrored our anti-Leninist one party state stance as well. And I think Tiananmen Square added accelerant to that, to that rocket. At the same time, you had that bolstering in a way, the realist argument that we have to continue to dominate the Western Pacific um, into the near future. Otherwise, we're going to have a series of cascading series of problems. And I think they both were mutually reinforcing of each other and have continued to this day. So that's, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's where I come from. So you might, you might just jump the queue. And <laughs> also, another thing, too, is that Mike um, can read page 378. <laughs> was China, was China was not America's to lose. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hello, my name is Joshua Pai, a junior uh, studying political science and Chinese. Um, I was really interested as you were talking about how America is kind of losing its quote unquote soft power, both as a political and as an economic model, and how that's had an influence on China, where their model becomes much more attractive. Do you see a way? That's their hope. Right, right. Or do you see a way in which the U.S. could regain its kind of soft power in correlation to China? Yeah, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know whether it's in correlation to China, but I think the United States does best when we do well as a nation. And doing well as a nation means kind of being relatively true to the values that we actually seem to, at, at a certain point in our history, hold, held, you know, hold deal, have, hold, have held dear. And I think that uh, not necessarily done all in relation to China, but in relation to ourselves. If our act is clean, then we have a lot more to sell uh, than if our act is, is not and is murky. So I think the, the black sites, the Guantanamo, these other issues have regardless of whether there's a justification for those to have them you know, uh, uh, or not, that they've done great damage to the United States ideationally in China as well. That said, you know, U.S. quote-unquote soft power is still deeply attractive in China, um, even refracted through South Korea and through Japan, which, 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 which is how Chinese mostly access sort of American cultural reprints. Um, and I think that, that will continue f well into the future, especially at the same time, because China, even though on one front is doing incredibly well in terms of economics and, and infrastructure construction, um, the, the creation of a soft Chinese power, they, do, they, don't, they don't do a good job at all. Um, and you know, their literature, their art, and their film, which could be some of the most interesting in the world, is not, because the party continues to maintain its control. So. Um, hi, my name is Katie Graham. I'm a sophomore. And in a lot of the political science that I've studied, we focus on individual leaders and the roles that they play in like, leading their country to development. Mm -hmm. And I must confess, I don't know a lot about Chinese history. Yeah. So are there any particularly influential leaders or dynasties that you feel helped China to become? Well, yeah, I think that um, I, I, would, I would really say that there are three. Well, actually, let's say four. But <laughs> one guy didn't kind of really make it. He got thrown into jail. But um, and this is t just communist leaders, because I think also China has this really incredibly rich liberal tradition, which has sort of been wiped out, um, which is a shame. But, but they were actually in the 1920s and 1930s, even in the 1950s, although they got thrown into labor camps, there, were, there was a really powerful tradition of Chinese liberals as well. But let's put that off to the side. So Deng Xiaoping is the first, I think, the most important leader in, in anyone's lifetime. 
He really brought China into the, the modern world. He really understood that China couldn't throw any more labor at its problems and needed capital. And to get capital, it had to engage in, in a relationship, actually first with Japan and then with the United States. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of anti-Japanese anti propaganda in China, but actually the, the nation, other than the United States, that's the most important to China's rise has actually been Japan. But Deng Xiaoping is the first. And then the second, of course, would be Jiang Zemin, who really embraced the idea that capitalists in China could be loyal to the party state. And he really emboldened capitalists to join the party. And, and that was, I think, hugely important in the 1990s as, as China's econ economy really took off. They embraced the capitalist. They, you could say, suborned the capitalist nowhere because they understood that capitalism left with no controls could actually bring down the party state or form a separate you know, locus of power. So he brought them into the tent. And I think he was very important in that sense. And then I think the, the dog that didn't bark was Zhao Ziyang, who was um, arrested after 1989, who had a different vision, maybe one could say more of a vision of convergence with the West. But he wasn't allowed to continue in power, and he was ultimately thrown into jail. Uh, but his then memoirs came out after he died, in which he was clearly on the side of a more democratic, more liberal China. And then the fourth, of course, would be the current boss right now, Xi Jinping, who um, has recently made, a, made an announcement, not himself personally, but that, that, that basically he's going to stay on as president for life or for a certain period of time into the future, which I think is a hugely risky move um, in terms of the Chinese, poli Chinese ultimate political stability, not so much for the next five years, but what happens when he gets old and feeble? I think he's going to probably cause a, a huge uh, uh, political battle uh, to take over the big chair. But he's very important in this whole idea of China going out to the world and China, where, whereas Deng's philosophy was China needed to bide its time and wait, uh, Xi's philosophy is China no longer needs to bide its time, and China can, can begin to exert, exert its influence and authority and, 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 and military power and economic sway uh, on, a global, on a global scale. So I think he's important from there as well. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jared Smith, and I'm a sophomore <coughs> economics major. Yeah. And anyway, I was wondering what you believe Taiwan's state will be in the wake of this new rivalry. So I think that things between the United States and Taiwan and China are going to heat up. Um, it's uh, uh, so the Congress is now pushing uh, for legislation on Taiwan. If the Trump administration accepts the legislation, I think that's going to probably result in the Chinese, as they will do with the tariffs, to do a tit for tat and put more pressure on Taiwan. Um, the issue with Taiwan is complicated because Taiwan has a long history with the United States as well. In fact, it's kind of the place where American values have actually taken the deepest root, right? It's, it's now a thriving democracy. It's no longer this authoritarian martial law um, island that it used to be. And I, and I think that as competition and rivalry increases between the United States and China, Taiwan ultimately is going to bear some of the brunt of that rivalry. Um, so my uh, at the same time, um, I think that the way that the Chinese Communist Party has managed its relations with Taiwan have also complicated the situation because they're very tough on Hong Kong. The Taiwanese look to how the Chinese have carried out their one, one country, two systems policy in Hong Kong. The Taiwanese really don't want to have any part of a unity with China. So 30 years ago, when I first began going to Taiwan, you had about 
20 some odd percent, 25 percent of the Taiwanese uh, on polling were interested in unity with China. And now it's down to like less than 10 percent. And then amongst the young, it's, it's, it's de minimis. Um, there's a real Taiwanese identity that's coming, and that's going to even more, will, will complicate more China's attempts to, to, to get that nation. Now, the question is whether the Chinese are going to launch some type of invasion of Taiwan. I think that's anybody's guess. If I had to guess, I would guess that the, the, op, the, the, the possibility for that is on the lower scale because it's just so risky. Because if, ta if China maintains a hard line against Taiwan, that's one thing. But if it loses a battle to gain Taiwan, that will cause the fall of the Communist Party in China for sure. And that's a hugely risky thing for the Chinese to do. The next, go ahead. Um, hi, I'm Jackie. I'm a sophomore studying psychology. Hi. And my question was in regards to your comment on um, that the United States' decision to invade Iraq um, influenced the Chinese people's belief of the U.S. in terms of we were no longer like the global police officer, but now like a global bully. Yeah. So my question is, what are your thoughts on like what our relationship would have been with um, the Chinese people or the Chinese government if, our, if we never decided to invade? Well, I mean, it would give, I think that this was used by people in China uh, as, as a justification for their argument against any chatter that convergence made sense and that the global system run by America was a system in which Chinese could thrive. And the Chinese, the view, the, 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 the narrative is that you look at the Americans, look at what they're doing. This is just another example of, of their type of imperialism. They're no better than the British or the French or the Germans or the Japanese were. And if we hadn't done that, it's difficult to say how much better things would be, but I think they'd certainly be less complicated. Um, I mean, the first, so the interesting thing actually is the first Gulf War in 1990, 1991 really shocked the Chinese, not because we defended Kuwait, but because we beat the Iraqis so quickly. And that sparked a significant amount of Chinese investment in their own military modernization because of America's smart bomb technology and the rapidity with which, with, with, with which we took over um, Kuwait and pushed the uh, Iraqis out of Kuwait really, really scared the Chinese. But at the same time, they also respected George H.W. Bush's limitation of that war, not to extending to overthrow, overthrowing Saddam's government. And so that, that, that was an interesting moment. And, it's, and, and the Chinese reaction to that is far different from China's reaction to the sec second Gulf War when we actually invaded Iraq and toppled Saddam Hussein, who had not done anything to threaten the United States. It was a war of choice, not a war of, war of uh, necessity. Ms. Campbell, I teach in the history department here. How seriously do the Chinese take the suggestion that there could be this enhancement of a sort of uh, arc alliance from Japan round to India with the United States as the coordinator yeah. of it, but uh, not playing the full sort of role, but right. it would join this power. I mean, do they take that seriously, or do they think these are such disparate countries that you're never going to get them to coordinate effectively as a sort of, you know, containment strategy, to use the old term, yeah. on the expansion of Chinese power, both you know, in the South China Sea. Board. So they do take it very seriously, and 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 you've noticed the phraseology about the way the Japanese. It started with the Japanese. 
but the, the, the Indians and the Australians and the Americans have embraced this Japanese term that the Japanese translated into English for us and taught us, which is the Indo-Pacific. So now they've expanded the idea of the Pacific Ocean to, to, to contain the Indian Ocean as well. And then it becomes part of our sort of Japan, America, Australia, and India, our common interest, with Vietnam kind of running along behind. Um, and the Japanese do, I mean, so the Chinese do worry about containment. And they worry about what, what is now called the Quad, right? Japan, US, um, Australia, and, and India, uniting in some type of a de facto alliance to, to manage and contain China. That's a, that's a clear strategic concern, which explains why China is interested in pushing out beyond uh, the second island chain, right? Their expansion into the South China Sea, their demands on the Senkaku Islands, and then for strategic reasons, forget reasons of national unity, but for strategic reasons, their, their designs on Taiwan as well. Because Taiwan, from their perspective, is the cork in the bottle, right? It's the, it's the cork that really does keep China hemmed in. And they look at the Quad as another attempt to hem China in. And so throughout Chinese media, but in, in the journals of Chinese strategists, you see this, this concern about Western containment with the Indians um, as well um, of China. So they take it seriously. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, um, my name is Sophie. I'm a senior marketing major. Mm -hmm. um, I was just wondering how sustainable you see the CCP's hard line on citizen dissent, which seems to not really show any Letting up, yeah. you know, if anything, it's gotten worse. Worse, yeah. So I'm, um, I'm sort of a, a medium to long-term optimist about uh, political liberalization in China. Um, not because I see any signs in the near future for, for significant political change, but I think that the, my sense is that my classmates, who are now in their 50s and 60s, won a lot of personal freedom. And it wasn't an easy battle with the Chinese system. Um, but they won it, and they battled for it, and they got a lot. So when they first graduated, they were assigned jobs. They were told when they could get married. They were told when they could have a baby. Um, if you wanted to leave a job, you had to get the approval of your, of, your of your current boss in order to go to a new job. right? And so the amount of flexibility they had to actually become the agents of their life was highly constrained. And over the course of the last several decades, they've blown that system apart basically by just not tolerating it, not by massive demonstrations, but by just basically over time just pushing the system to accommodate their interests. And I think that the next generation, their kids, and the generation after that will want more personal freedom. And ultimately, at a certain point, and it's not on America time, it's on China time, that's going to bleed over into the political realm. How it's going to look like, is it going to be participatory democracy? That's for them to decide, but I think inevitably, um, given the increasing sophistication of the average Chinese person, right, the ability of social media to move information around rapidly, inevitably that's going to have a political dimension. So it's going to happen. I just don't know when. But so I don't think this is sustainable in the short term for sure. It's sustain even more so because it's bolstered with AI and the massive Chinese investment in AI and using AI to monitor the population. I mean, now in Shanghai, if you drive a car in certain places and you honk, right? where honking is not allowed. They have sensors that can tell which car honked, find your license plate, immediately charge you a ticket, and it shows up on your WeChat app, right? <laughs> and, and, then, and, so, and, 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 and that then affects your what they call general social credit score, which will have influence on whether you can get a loan from your bank, 
right? Now, ultimately, the Chinese people, as I was talking with Chinese students here, are going to figure out ways to game that system. But, but I think that AI will bolster the ability of the party state to control behavior. But ultimately, I think the demands of the, uh, the more and more generations who are, not, who are used to like, significant leeway in terms of personal freedom will push back against this. And you can only squeeze a pressure cooker so long before it blows. And I worry that Xi's decision to stay on in his position as emperor for life could be actually a catalyst for some type of political change. Um, because if you don't have a, a clear succession um, that's, that's, that, that has been set up in order to avoid political strife, then the tensions from underneath the society, as long as you've kept that political pressure on, will blow up at a certain point, like it did in 1989, but also like it did in the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, and then the anti-rightist campaign in the 1950s. So I, I think this is going to be a slow process, but it, I think it's inevitable. Perhaps I'm too optimistic, but I, I, there are too many liberals in China, and it's, at a certain point, their voice is going to be heard. It could go in another way, though, of course. Right? Yeah. Hi. Uh, my name is Liam Finn. I'm a sophomore political science and Arabic major. Mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering how you see uh, China and the United States working together or not to resolve the North Korea uh, nuclear crisis. Yeah, I think this is a sort of a big test of the relationship. But I also think in the United States, we don't really have an appreciation for China's interests in North Korea. And China really does look at North Korea in a way as an internal issue of China, in such that the thing that the Chinese have studied more than anything else over the last 20 years has been the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they look at when Russia started to get weak on Poland, Eastern Germany, and Hungary, that was the beginning of the end of the CPSU, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And the Chinese think, well, OK, North Korea is our East Germany. It's a, obviously, it's a different relationship. The Chinese look down on the North Koreans, right? Uh, Kim Jong-un is called Jin Sanpang in Chinese, which is like number three fatty Kim. The Chinese, go, the Chinese go to North Korea on tours to see what they were like when they were poor. Um, and I went on China, I went to North Korea with, with Chinese tourists, and it was great. Like every chance they could have, they would just laugh at the North Koreans. So socially, the Chinese really looked down on them. But the party state's view is different, is that we need this nation. It's, you know, it's one of the last Leninist states in the world. And they need to maintain that nation, because they worry that if they go soft on North Korea, that people in China who want to challenge the Communist Party will look at that as a sign of weakness. And that's significantly important to their internal stability. So in addition to the quarter of a million refugees you'd had, you know, and all these other problems you would have if, if North Korea collapsed, if we really put the pressure on, you'd also have these internal political problems, which are much more important from the party's perspective. Right? Their job is to stay in power. Right? Their job is not necessarily to make the world better for China. Their job is to make the world better for the Communist Party of China, which is a little bit different. And so I think that's that critical, I think that appreciation for their issues has made it difficult for the United States to really figure out how to deal with North Korea. Um, my belief is that ultimately we're going to have to be forced to accept North Korea as a nuclear power, not necessarily in writing, but, but that's just going to, because I think the idea of giving them a bloody nose is totally insane. Right? Perhaps we do it, and perhaps we're that nutty, but one would hope we're not that crazy. The only, I think, the most important issue is, is trying to make sure that North Korea does not have the ability to proliferate its weapons to people who don't want to, to, who want to hurt us. 
I mean, that, so example would be this, these chemical weapons stuff to, 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 the, to the Assyria. That's a perfect example of what you do not want to see with, with the nuclear stuff. So that's, I think, the, the key issue. And the U.S. and China can work together on that. I will just mention that you're optimistic that China is heading towards uh, like system with more personal freedom. Mm -hmm. Would you think that to be like a smooth transformation? And what do you think would be the CCP's role? Well, I, I, I don't, I, not, no, no such transformation like that can be actually very smooth. But I, I think that China has changed a lot since 1989 and the Tiananmen Square crackdown. In 1989 in China, nobody had anything, right? There was no home ownership in the cities whatsoever, or a tiny percentage. And then now most people who live in the cities come from families that own property in the city. 90% um, of the Chinese wealth is in real estate. My classmates, like I said, they're all on paper millionaires. I mean, you know, they have entertainment systems as big as my Honda Odyssey. And so with that in mind, I think that most people in China do not want to see any type of chaotic revolution given the fact that so people have so much to lose. The thing I worry about is with Xi Jinping making this decision, he, I think from my perspective, in the, in the medium to long term, increases the potential for political instability because he's dismantled the old, the old rules that Deng Xiaoping put into place for the succession of the Communist Party. And so I worry that actually he's putting China on a roll to political instability. I think the average Chinese person wants to see evolution, not revolution. Because in, in, in an evolution, they can maintain what they've got, and, and things will change slowly over time. And I think most people are basically supporting, supporting that idea. I'm Dan Lindley, political science. First of all, I'm wondering what the state of malignant nationalism is in China, externally oriented. You know, is there any? Uh, secondly, if you were thinking about putting a factory somewhere, low-wage country, now that we have probably what I take to be rising wages, a personalistic dictator for life, uh, would you perhaps consider a different country? And relatedly, if you had a factory in China, would you be beginning to get some jitters right now? And what's the value of a contract in China? Mm -hmm. Just a fundamental question. Right. Um, what was your first question again? Oh, yeah. malignant nationalism. I got it. I got it. Okay. Yeah, so malignant nationalism. So I think, I think the, the, probably the best way to describe the nationalism in China is sort of resentful nationalism. And it's been encouraged really strongly since um, 1989 with the launching of the patriotic education campaign. Because in 89, the, the party kind of came to its senses and realized that many of the young people in China were, really loved the West. And they had to re-educate them in a very resentful nationalism that stressed the, how Western powers had always been trying to keep China down. And it's a fundamentally different nationalism than the nationalism of Mao Zedong, who basically, the Chairman Mao said, we won, right? The Chinese people have stood up. We don't owe the world, and, and the world doesn't owe us anything because we did it by ourselves. And Mao rejected openly Japanese reparations. And he had a narrative of Chinese victory. Whereas from 1989, there's been a narrative of China's Chinese defeat, which is ironic to say the less, consider, considering from 89, to the present time, China has risen greatly in terms of its national power. But at the same time, it's more and more resentful about the, the West than it, than it has, has been in, in recent history. Um, uh, investment issues. So the second question was? What's the value of the contract? OK. So if you're in low income, in, uh, if you're in low tech industries, you want to leave China. 
right? Textiles that won't, have almost all left China. Um, they've moved to Bangladesh, um, Vietnam, and other, and other lower cost places, which have, uh, are, are on the surface at least more stable than China. Um, if you're involved, the, the issue if you're in high tech industry uh, and you want to do investments in China, one of the problems there is that there's forced technological transfer. So you come and you want to make something like very new and different, often the Chinese will, as part, of, part and parcel of the contract, make you sign away your technology or um, uh, uh, have your technology follow Chinese standards uh, in order to actually produce that technology in China. And that has caused a lot of Western companies to have significant concerns about investing in China. So like a huge, huge uh, um, computer um, program, Salesforce, has no operations whatsoever in terms of selling, uh, creating its, its, its software and selling its software into China because of worries about the Chinese copying it. Um, other companies like Microsoft have taken a different view. They don't worry so much about um, IPR, um, but they do because, because they, they believe the Chinese market is so vast. But in the surveys done by um, the American Chambers of Commerce, both in Beijing and Shanghai, the sentiment about doing business in China is a lot weaker than it was 15 years ago. It's a significant slide over time. In terms of the value of a contract, in the Chinese legal system, generally speaking, on, on issues that don't touch politics, the legal system has become a lot more professional than it used to be. So that you can get reparations, you can win a contract and have that contract, win a, you know, fight, fight, you know, sue, sue a Chinese partner in court and have the, the judgment in court being carried out. Um, that's happening on a more regular basis than it did 15, 20 years ago. So there is a change there as well. And the reason, one of the main reasons for that is because the Chinese private sector has really demanded, has really pushed that change. And the growth of China, the Chinese private sector has been really, had a really important influence on the whole um, uh, contract situation in China. I was reminded that um, the bookstore ladies outside may have to read this. If you want to get a copy, then make sure that you get a copy as quick as possible. And also, we're not supposed to really stay here for too long. But we'll try, we like to break news. So we'll try to take as many <laughs> well, questions why can't as we possible. Stay too long? A student over there. <laughs> My name is Suyan. I'm the master student of global affairs uh, at the Kiel School. So my question is uh, similar to Jinjin's question. So you are very optimistic about the the use use uh, kind of uh, aspiration to push the boundary of the uh, certain rules or norms in, uh, norms in in China. But on the other hand, so the new generation has no memory about the past. We they ha they are post 1990. Then experience uh, the cultural revolution, so it's really easy, kind of easy for them to to to, to believe in the the, the propaganda and uh, the government controlled media. What yeah. they what they say. So so uh, and also like for example the internet is is really strictly controlled by the government. So which in, in diffusing diffusing information. So my question is that. Uh, how do you think that the, the internet will change or influence the youth idea about communism or democracy or some any other political issue? So, I mean, on, on the pessimistic side, I completely agree with you that the societal control is actually more intense than it was 10 years ago. But I think the reason why it was, it's more intense than it was 10 years ago is because they're so worried about Western ideas, right? I mean, so the reason for document number nine, for example, which was this document about 
hostile anti-Western forces, is that they really are scared of these forces inside their society. And the Chinese state security system knows its country better than I ever will. And the fact that the Chinese state devotes more money to internal security than it does to national defense, to me is a sign that they understand the power of the ideas about freedom. I mean, whether it's, it's, it's Chinese freedom, it's not American freedom, they're different, they're gonna be different. But they understand how powerful these ideas are, and so they're working as hard as they can to repress them. But they're spending so much money that at a certain point, there will be cracks in this armor. And the cracks come through in some ways. The internet, you look at all the jokes about Xi Jinping now that he's gonna be president for life. So on one hand, yes, I agree with you, the younger generation, you could, you know, to lack of a better term, there's a lot of brainwashing go going on. But after these kids leave college and enter into the workforce in China, things do change, right? And a man at 35 thinks differently about his country than a man at, at 21 and 22 does. And so while I, I totally agree that, that this resentful nationalism is a problem in China, I also think that with time and dealing with being in China changes the way people think about their country and their desire for more space will, 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 will continue. And that doesn't really involve US-China relations. It involves their relation to their city, to the garbage collection, to the tax man, and these type of issues, which I think will be an inevitable part of pushing the bounds. And, and in that sense, WeChat and the internet will, 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 play, a, will play a useful role. Um, I mean, in China, it's interesting. Most people really like the central government, but they hate the mayor right, in China. In which the United States, it's almost the opposite, right? We, we, hate, we hate Washington, but we actually like our local Pauls. And it's a very different system. And as the Chinese push for more responsive local government, they will, change, they will change the government with time. And I don't think propaganda in that point really will play that big a role. Because they want the garbage to be picked on top. They want clean air for their kids. You cannot hide pollution. Right? And that's a huge push among many Chinese as well. I'm John Lindblom. I'm a doctoral candidate in theology here. Um, you said a few minutes ago that if, um, if uh, China's military were to lose an effort to, to uh, take Taiwan, that would cause the fall of the party. Yeah. I hadn't heard that prediction before. Could you state why you believe that's the case, or is that held by a lot of well, scholars to be the case? Um, I don't know whether it's kind of mainstream, but I, I think that the party has, part of its legitimacy is that it's the party that will ultimately unite China. And if it fails at this historical task to, to unite China, in Beijing there are these, these rainbows, these half rainbows that, that frame um, Chang'an Street that goes through the capital. And people have said, well, there'll only be full rainbows when our nation is united. Um, uh, and so it, it's, uh, at least on paper, it's the goal of the Communist Party. And if they fail at that goal, um, there's clearly the potential for uh, usurpers to the throne to rise up and say um, their failures, you know, we should do double down and really attack Taiwan or use nukes, or are there people who can come up and say, why are we doing this? Why are we killing our own people? Um, so I think it would, would be of, of, of uh, regime-shaking um, importance. I'm a freshman studying philosophy here. Mm -hmm. uh, my question is, uh, 
So I think that the, de the, the desire to, to transform China is something that has continued through our history. Um, but it started as a desire to transform China into a very Christian country. Um, that was in the 19th century. And then um, as a country that could serve as a bulwark against imperialist pressure from Europe and Japan, that was in sort of the middle 20th century. And then as a capitalist China, which is, came out of the 19, as sort of uh, as a pro-American ally, which was in the sort of the 70s and the 80s, um, and then as a capitalist China in the 1990s. So it's changed over time. Um, and, and then as what, what America, uh, the, the, the regime of um, administration of George, H. W., George W. Bush called a responsible stakeholder, sort of a supporter of a, uh, with America of the global financial system. Um, which, was, which came out of the George W. Bush administration. So it's changed over time, but the desire to transform China is something that's deep in the American DNA in terms of our interaction. In terms of what a strong China meant, they, so they believe that with American engagement, this was the idea, China would become both strong and like us. And st a strong China was necessary because it could form the bulwark against other nations interfering in Asia. Uh, that was the initial idea in the 19th century because the Brits were our competitor. Now our, the, the, the British, Britain is our ally, but we forget that up until the 1920s, well, so soon after World War I, Britain was actually a competitor of the United States, which was how Americans viewed, viewed Britain. And so our idea was China would be the bulwark against, and so a strong, united China would be very important to that role of, of facilitating American uh, uh, dominance of Asia as well. And they didn't really factor into the idea that if China became strong, it would actually begin to push back at the United States. And so now ideology, and I think ideology has played an important part in encouraging America to be worried about China. Uh, my name is Michael Finan. I'm a senior studying political science. Uh, you said that you're optimistic about China liberalizing eventually, but uh, on its own time, not mm -hmm. the U.S.'s time. Yeah. My question then is, what, in your opinion, what's the optimal U.S. foreign policy? Is it one of engagement, or is it one of more competitive? So I, I, my sense is, I mean, my belief is that we have to continue to engage with China because it's so important on the world stage. I think that... Um, we, it would probably be wiser for us to, to, to the extent that we could construct a more reciprocal relationship with China. So for example, if they allow, if they don't allow American companies to invest in a raft of areas, then we actually have to say to the Chinese, we're sorry, you can't invest in these areas in the United States. That involves perhaps trying to figure out a bilateral investment treaty between the two societies that would open areas of China to American investment and then have those similar areas open to Chinese as well but on a much more reciprocal basis. Um, I don't think the trade balance is of any concern whatsoever to anybody and should be. Um, I think it's just a natural result of, of the, the, the way the economy, the symbiosis in the economies. But I think trying to construct a more reciprocal relationship would be probably the, the main idea. And continue engagement as long as it's useful to the United States, not in terms of this long-term plan of transforming China into another us, 
but in terms of you know, reaching short-term interests. So for example, I'm all for FBI and DEA involvement in, the China, in China because of, of fighting drug trafficking and fighting terrorism. It makes perfect sense. Right? FAA, I think, is a marvelous thing because the, the safety of, the air, of, of China's airlines is in the direct interest of American passengers. So things like that makes perfect sense. Um, and then NASA, um, International Space Exploration, should we reopen, because that's blocked by an act of Congress, should we reopen that idea and engaging with the Chinese to try to encourage them to turn their space agency into a civilian organization and get the PLA out of the business of space launches, right? That, that, that could be possible by, by, by having the carrot of NASA um, working with the Chinese. So I think these, these, these type of issues, but have to be done with a sort of a, a less romantic notion that as long as we engage, they're going to become like us in a more um, transactional perspective, saying, does this actually help our interests now um, or not? So, but I think getting rid of engagement is impossible. They're too important. My name is Rachel, and I'm studying sociology and theology. Mm -hmm. My question is, if you think engagement is so important, why do you think the Trump administration is really against it? I think that on some, on some areas they are, and some areas they aren't. Um, so, and I, I, I think that, but, but I think that today's tariffs are a sign that we're going to get more tariffs, and we're going to have you know, a trade battle, not necessarily a trade war with China, but it's clearly the Chinese are going to have to respond, right? Um, why is there less interest in engagement in the Trump administration? Because I think people have an argument against the kind of the, I think the, 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 the notion that there was convergence, and they're fed up. And I think that even in, if a, you had a Clinton administration, you would probably get a similar policy um, as well. Uh, and I think that there's, there's a lack of creativity in trying to fashion a new type of engagement with China, which directly serves our interests, but keeps the conversation going. I mean, they, you know, as Churchill said, jaw, jaw is better than war, war. Um, and, but, but that said, underneath the surface, there's a lot of communication between both sides, clearly. So, so uh, on the surface, they're dismantling engagement, but underneath, there's a lot of conversations happening between the National Security Council and the Chinese, State Department and the Chinese. So it, engagement's not dead yet. Hopefully, it won't die. Um, I'm, hi, I'm Kat. I'm a sophomore studying English and political science. Um, and so last semester, I was in a comparative politics class, and we talked a lot about the US model versus the China model. Um, specifically, if it's better to have democracy first and then achieve wealth, or wealth first, kind of with an authoritarian government yeah. and with democracy as an afterthought. So, based on these two models, which do you think seems to be more successful? And furthermore, which model do you think seems more appealing to developing countries? So, the argument the Chinese make um, so, 89 happens, and the Chinese respond by a crackdown, and then they sort of really embrace economic reforms. And then in, as part of the patriotic education campaign movement, they talk to their people uh, and say, you know, if you became democratic, you would not look like the United States. And they, they, they bring out two models. They said, you'd look like Russia or India. You want to be that? <laughs> and, and so um, it's, had, it's had a significant amount of effect of convincing a certain number of Chinese that, yeah, you know, 
we wouldn't become the Asian America, we might become the East Asian India or the East Asian Russia. And the Russians, I mean, and the Chinese have a lot of respect for Putin. They really think, and I think Xi Jinping, ironically, is, is really following in Putin's footsteps. But in the 1990s, the Chinese laughed at the Russians, right? They used to call the Russians their big brother, and then in the 1990s, they started to call the Russians their big sister, which was rude, to say the least, you know, and sexist as well. But, um, but um, so I think their argument is that it makes more sense to get rich first and then worry about, and, and, and it's also a way for the party to say to the people who are, uh, you know, um, uh, impatient for change, hey, cool your jets, we might get there. Um, throwing down the road that football uh, or kicking that can down the road of, of potential political liberalization later on. So for the party, it's worked out so far. And I can't tell you how many times I've listened into conversations as I've tried when traveling in China. And I, you know, my Chinese is pretty good, so I just like listen in. When I heard, I heard Chinese people talking to each other, and they're all relatively well healed. They're taking an airplane, so they have some money. And they, they talk about them, them, their people in this kind of really interesting way. They say the quality of Chinese people is very low. That's what they'll say to each other. In Chinese, it makes perfect sense. It's like Zhongwu in the Suzhou Taidila, right? And, and then some will say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, we really need an emperor, right? And that's, that's, that's this kind of ideology that's come from the Communist Party, saying if, if you don't watch out, you're going to get those hoi polloi, all those lumpen proletariat workers who are going to be controlling your fate, and it's going to be worse. And it's been very successful in terms of a propaganda line to convince people. Well, thanks to you know, the faculty with a lot of patience. So Susan and Eugene and Lionel. Susan Bloom, Anthropology. You want a chair? No, I'm good. Okay, all right. I mean, I see you leaning. No, it's all right. I just lean. If you could comment on the Belt and Road Initiative. You talked about meddling in Sri Lanka. Right. You know, China's got all this economic clout, and they're trying to get resources and all other things in African countries and in Latin America. And I wondered if you could say something about that. Yeah, so I think, I mean, the Belt and Road is fascinating. We don't really quite know what it's going to be yet. It's in early days. But um, I think... Primarily, it is a program that is focused on exporting ex, uh, sort of surplus Chinese steel and surplus Chinese products and surplus Chinese engineering capability around the world in order to help China's economy. And that's kind of at its root. Secondarily, it's a geopolitical play to increase China's influence, to compete with Russia for uh, East Asia, I mean, sorry, uh, uh, Central Asia. Um, to continue its deep engagement in Africa, uh, and then also to try to help its security on its western border with Pakistan, because China is now is facing terrorist problems um, with Uyghurs being trained, um, some Uyghurs being trained in Syria, some ISIS involvement in the Uyghur movement in China. And they want to they use that as a way to sort of help Pakistan's economy and stabilize Pakistan. In addition, strengthening Pakistan against what they believe to be their main Asian rival, which is um, well, the, one of the main Asian rivals, which is India. And then also as a way to compete against Japan. Because Japan, for decades, has basically had a massive belt and road pro, pro, uh, projects around the world in supporting development in countries all over the globe. And so the Chinese look at this as a way to compete also with Japan. Um, and so, but it's early days yet on, 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 this, on this, this issue. But that will, by its very nature, push China into, uh, put China into position where it's going to be compelled to meddle in the affairs of, of foreigners. Um, 
you know, with great power comes great responsibility. So. <laughs> Uh, so sorry, you used that Spider-Man quote. Uh, <laughs> really, that, um, that's a whole other conversation. Though, so. um, uh, thanks for, for lots of really interesting stuff in your, in your talk. It's been great. I, I want to ask you more about the China side than the U.S. side of the relationship. Right? Yeah. So the title of the talk was something about the coming crisis in U.S.-China right. relations. And as I understand it, um, the crisis is on our side. On our side. Yeah. Like, we want them to transform into us. It's not going to happen, so we're upset and we're going to do something pissy as a result. Um, yeah. uh, but um, what does China want from the relationship? That, and where is the, you know, how is the crisis going to evolve on their side? So you said earlier that Deng wanted capital, which makes perfect sense, yeah. but now China is. Because they need capital. capital. So they don't need it. So right. why aren't they just done with the relationship <laughs> and um, they can just have their own harmonious, happy Chinese development? Uh, who needs us? So in, in, in many ways, uh, if you look at, for example, exports as a, as a, as a, as a function of GDP, they're, they're, it's much smaller than it used to be. And I mean, it used to be the Chinese, the, the Americans basically gobbled up 30% of China's exports. And now that's down to like, 8% maximum. So if we really, you know, when we slap all these tariffs on Chinese goods, it's going to it's going to give the Chinese a black eye, but it's not going to cause like a massive, you know, they're not going to catch the flu. And so America's ability on the economic front to influence China is significantly degraded from what it used to be, which is a natural process. And the fact that China now has a market of its own with 1.5 billion people and they have a lot more money than they used to be. And so in a lot of cases, it, you could say the Chinese don't really need the United States as much as they used to at all. And, but at the same time, they want a quiescent relationship with the United States because they believe it's very important for their continued development to have a semblance of peace on their borders. And so if, if, if the United States becomes more aggressive with China, that will keep push them off what they believe to be their trajectory which is some type of peaceful development, peaceful rise. Um, and I think that that is one of the reasons why they're, they're concerned with the relationship. They've dis dispatched Liu He, a standing member of the Politburo, to Washington to talk about this, um, to try to really keep it on track. And the other issue is that, you know, uh, you know, forget about American DNA, but in the DNA of the party, a stable relationship with the United States is actually something that's considered very important for the general secretary of the Communist Party to have. It's been considered a priority since Deng. And perhaps it's not as important as it used to be, but it's still important. Because their, their concern is that if we go sideways, we can make it much more difficult for them to accomplish their goals of, of a rising power than if we are, are quiescent and, and sort of accede to their rise. And I think that's something that is of, of key importance to them. I mean, the creation of a quad, right, an alliance against the Chinese, they do not want the United States to go in that direction. They're unhappy with the security relationship we're developing with South Korea. Uh, I'm sorry, the security relationship we're, we're developing with Vietnam. They don't like the continued and the strengthened American treaty with, with the Japanese. And they think that if this relationship gets worse, it will complicate their, uh, their, 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 their rise uh, significantly. So that's, that's why they care about their relationship with America. It's no longer an economic issue um, because you know, they've just grown too big. So. Well, 
talkers. But I, I, I want to just make one quick point, which is I think it, you said Tyler's letter was written in 1843, is yeah. that right? And actually, that was the last fever dream date, that year at least, of Hong Cho Chen, when he actually finally saw the Manchus as right. demons. Right. So there's something kind of perfect about that in a way, right. the, the dating of it. But anyhow, yeah. nonetheless, um, what I wanted to ask you about is could you say something in light of the, the larger sort of orchestral framework of your, your most recent book about, mm -hmm. about the self-image of the age in China today? The fact that, you know, and my question goes to, in what way are they refunctioning or capturing a certain phenomenon of expansionism that goes with, let's say, recovering what the empire once had? Or on the other hand, to what extent is this being fed by a mythology that was part of global communism and mm -hmm. expansionism and taking over territories that are ultimately inevitable, right? Because in fact, it was right. a finer system. Yeah. It seems to me that there may be a convergence here. I think there's a convergence right? so, there. So I wonder if you have some ideas about that you could share. Yeah, so you, you read like the People's Daily right now when they talk about this China dream, uh, sort of the China solution. It has, it both smacks of this Chinese idea that we are back to where we should be as the Middle Kingdom, right? That's sort of the center of the universe, this important you know, leader of the globe. And that's our rightful space. But at the same time, it also has kind of uh, um, uh, the framing in, in this way of, you know, this is part of the natural course of things because our system is a better system than the rest of the world has. And, but they, and so there's expressions like now, I mean, in People's Daily in, on January 15th had this long um, article, which was um, written by a fellow by the name of, translated into, into English, Manifesto, right? And that's his name. This is obviously, a, you know, a, a nom de plume. And he wrote it in a way basically saying the world needs China now more than it ever, ever has. And we are here to show the world a new model and had both this kind of traditional Chinese thinking, at the same time you throw on this idea of expansionary, this expansionist idea of, of communist um, ideology. I think it's kind of a combination of both. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's worrying because it's very hubristic, and, and it, it, from my sense, it, it, they've really begun to drink the Kool-Aid that was given to them by Western analysts in, in, in the late 90s, that's saying, wow, you're really different and you're gonna really and I think that their system is, has yet to answer so many important questions. I mean, we've yet to answer them in many cases as well, but they've yet to answer many important questions that they're going to be faced with in the future with, with their, you know. Well, could you comment on it with respect to what's happening in the West Philippine Sea and so forth? I mean, how do we actually reconcile the idea that you are just mentioning, the optimism we might have about a peaceful rise right. of China getting its ultimate solution to this sort of tale of its story of putting China together and unifying it and making it the legitimate power it always wanted to be right. uh, under the Communist Party. I, I wonder how we deal with the fact that we are weaponizing a region by design right. that in large part is not part of the Huping Jiechi. You know, this is not right. really part of any kind of peaceful rise. Right. So, uh, I mean, this is just a contradiction, I understand, yeah. but I wonder, I was in the Philippines two summers ago, and the, really yeah, the reading of this is that, you know, this is just simply expansion and they're never going to stop. Yeah, and, I, well, I happen so. to believe that. I believe that they, they've taken a sort of a, a very slow but steady view, but they're, can, can, can do, they will continue to encroach on territory that they believe that they need in order to uh, uh, sustain their security. And that will, the more they grab, the more they'll want. Yeah. Well, thank you so much.
you so much. And I apologize if some of you don't get to ask questions, but a lot of the answers are actually in the book. Also, <laughs> he has written a lot of commentaries um, for the Washington Post. If you just find it, the latest one is exactly about this issue. So thank you so much. We learned a lot about this. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.